Hey, this is Matthew's Table podcast channel. We wanted to thank you for joining us today. Hope this inspires you, builds your faith, and reminds you of who you are, but more importantly, whose you are. So many needs in this community. All right, check, check. Good morning, good morning, good morning. That sounds weird, but getting better. Check, check. Should have tested it before I got up here, I guess. Um, anyways, hey, so we're excited that you're here with us this morning. Um, we're glad you chose to worship with us. We don't have an announcement video, so I am, uh, I'm going to share the announcements with you. That's way better, right? Is that good? All right, sounded like I was in a tunnel up here. It was really weird, and y'all are still asleep, so you didn't even recognize it. But anyways, uh, real quick, just so everyone knows, uh, we have Bible study every Sunday morning at 945. We have a men's, and we have a women's. But more importantly, we also have child care for the Bible study. So we'd like to see more people participate in the Bible study. Also know that uh, basically our Sunday morning schedule is uh, based around the fact that we're sharing the, the facility and Buena Vista is uh, underneath us in between services. So while uh, we hope to in the future be able to move this service up some right now, we've just got to, we got to deal with what we have. Uh, so uh, 9.45 is Bible studies every Sunday for the men's and for the women's. Also, if you're new here today, we're glad you're with us. We have connect cards. We'd love for you to fill those out, get your information on them, uh, turn them into the welcome desk is what I want to mention next is in the back back there where we have people who will be uh, manning the welcome desk uh, every Sunday. Uh, it's also turned into somewhat of a catch-all. So if you've lost something at a church service on a Sunday morning, it's back there. So make sure you check that we got jackets, hats, Bibles, all kinds of stuff that gets left behind. But it's going to have all of our uh, event information, different things, bulletins, connect cards, uh, announcements, all kinds of stuff, t-shirts for sale, masks, uh, logos of Matthew's table that you can put on your car. But um, make sure you always check out the welcome desk every Sunday so you can keep up with what's going on. Um, for an example, I don't know, I, Rob, did you create a slide for the May month events? Okay, so we have mass text this out. We've posted it on our Facebook, and uh, we're going to show you today, just so you know, we have a huge month of May ahead of us, and we're really excited about it. The first thing that is uh, coming is prayer night. So this coming Friday, we will have a night of prayer from 6.30 to 8.30. We'll have child care for up to third grade. And if you remember, we talked about this since January. We want to be a church that prays, right? Like we want to be a radical praying church that goes before the Lord, before we decide to do anything and everything. And we need your help with that. And the last prayer service was uh, extremely powerful. Uh, there was a shift that took place just in people's hearts with being more committed and, and considering prayer being uh, extremely important in their faith. So uh, 
also, don't ever forget we got the prayer room here with the prayer cards. If you have prayer requests or things that you want the prayer team to be praying over, put them on there. I promise you, y'all should walk in there and check it out. If this is your church, that's your prayer room too. It's a huge board with all your prayer requests that go up. And then there's a logged account of every prayer request each, each week and each month. And those that get answered, we go back and highlight and we know which ones that God has answered. So there's just a ton of stuff going on over there that uh, I, I highly recommend you guys to consider doing stuff like that. But also, uh, next Sunday is Mother's Day, right? And we want to do a baby dedication service. So zero to 24 months, if you'd like to publicly profess in front of the church that you're committing yourself to raise your child up in the way of the Lord, then we want to recognize that next Sunday morning. What better day to do that? So if you're, you're a part of Matthew's table and you, you have a child that age or you know somebody has a child that age in the church, make sure you let them know. We'll be doing that right before the second service. And then as always, there's a youth event on the 14th, of course our community breakfast, and then our marriage night ministry. That's the month of May. It's going to be in your bulletin. It's on Facebook. It's been sent out in a mass text. So now everybody knows what we're doing for May, right? I also want to remind you guys quickly about um, the adoption fund. We are trying to fund one adoption as a church and we're serious about this, and we're probably around $1,000, and we have set a $10,000 goal. So if that's something that God has put on your heart or that you would like to, uh, to help fund, then you can get with me or Nick or Stephen or somebody, and we can kind of talk about that. But there'll be different events we do this year to try to raise that money so that we can help fund an adoption so that we bring one home, right, that doesn't have a home. And, all, and finally, uh, we are starting a new uh, sermon series. It's not really a series. It's more preaching from uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this is uh, big for us. I'm really excited about it. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But these next two weeks is just kind of kicking that off. And one way that we want to help everybody with that is we've bought books for individuals who's committed to Matthew's table. And those of you first, first people uh, in small churches particular will all get a book that's going to uh, complement what we're preaching from each week through Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, we're going to provide the link. This is the book. Uh, all small church leaders will get their books today for their small churches. Um, and we're going to provide the link and an image here of the book so that if you want to, uh, which I'm telling you, I love this book. I highly recommend it. It's a resource. It is not authoritative. It is not the scriptures. It just complements what we're going to be studying through Matthew 5 and 7. So I highly recommend if you're don't get a book that you consider buying this book yourself so that each week you can follow along with us, right? Um, it's, it's a great book. Uh, the elders went through this book last summer, and uh, it, it was highly beneficial. So there you have it. There's all the announcements. We need to do announcements videos. I don't like doing those. All right. Anyways, I'm going to pray again. We're going to get started. Father, we just asked this morning that although it's super early, it's also super significant that we turn our hearts and our minds and our ears to your word. That we ask the Spirit to help 
those who don't know you come to know you, but those also who do know you to know you in a bigger and better way. And Lord, all we have is the Word and the grace of God. And so right now, we're going to lean into that. We're going to trust in that. And we're going to hope, Lord, that you'll be helpful with us this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. Okay, guys. So these next 20 weeks, which is uh, about five months, assuming that we don't have to step aside or step out of it for a week or two uh, to address anything differently. Uh, But for the next 20 Sundays is uh, basically what I've been looking forward to uh, this year and, and is essentially the focus point for the church at Matthew's table, the people Uh, of Matthew's table. We're purposely pointing you to uh, these few chapters in Matthew so that it will help us uh, do what I'm going to talk about here in a second. The reason is we're in a new season, right? It's obvious that recently God has given us a home and God's drawing different people to Matthew's table. And to some degree, Matthew's table just looks different now than what it did a few years ago. Uh, The coolest thing is that God is bringing like-hearted people here and not so much like-minded right? Like religious groups, uh, they're Methodist, they're Catholic, they're Baptist, all those things. It's, it's, been a, it's been a totally different thing where we're all coming from different backgrounds. We all come from different churches to some degree. Some of us have never been to church and, and that's equally as cool to me. But uh, with that and, and recognizing that, it was uh, important for us to understand that it was, it was time for us, God was calling us to cast a new vision that would guide all of us to be helpful in, uh, in that calling. And this vision that I'm talking about, it's a weighty vision. The, the idea that we're going to be a diverse church where we're actually not going to talk about doing it, but we're willing to lose everything to try to accomplish it by the grace of God. And that's rich and poor, black and white, uh, educated, uneducated, whatever. Homeless, you own 10 homes, right? Like that's who we want to be. That's who we believe God's calling us to be, not to talk about it, but to walk about it. And to be real frank with you, it's often discouraged or when you talk about trying to be a diverse church, many people uh, don't want to talk you out of it, but they certainly don't think that you can accomplish it, which you can't outside of the grace of God. And that's why this is important. And frankly, it's because Christians spend more time fighting with one another than they do fighting for the souls of others. It's just true, right? I've experienced it. I've Unfortunately, I've played a part in it. And that's why we specifically went through the book of Galatians to keep the main thing the main thing. You're saved by grace alone, justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the thing that we all need to agree on and stand on and work from. Amen? And with our new vision, it's going to require us to be intentional with a clear focus that can't be accomplished without a commitment from every one of us. Which is why I'm recommending that if you're not currently in a small church right now, I highly encourage you to consider getting into one or else you stand to miss growing together through this study because we're going to take Sundays And to our small churches, 
with our sermon discussion and the book discussion, right? And that's what's going to help all of us grow in this. And uh, essentially, the Sermon on the Mount is what it's called. It's the greatest sermon ever preached because God preached it, right? Hey, y'all want to search good sermons? On YouTube, try the Bible. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the best sermon you'll ever read. Amen? And although that's mind-blowing in and of itself, that God actually stood on a mountain and preached this sermon, the context or main point of the sermon is kingdom life. It's kingdom life. So if we plan to look, live, and love like heaven, we need to know what that consists of. Wouldn't you agree? And what I can tell you about this, uh, about this in-depth study of Jesus' sermon, it'll be very much like an open-heart surgery, spiritually speaking. God exposes some of the deep, dark, rooted sins in our life, rips our heart out, puts it on the table, and through and by the Word of God begins to change it so that we can look, live, and love like heaven. Its intention is to expose the heart. And I'm going to talk a lot more about this next week, so I don't want to spend time on that right now. But these first two weeks leading up to actually preaching from that Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew 5-7 through seven, uh, is kind of like, it's going to be, uh, I'm, I'm light on illustration today. If you guys haven't noticed, that's kind of my style of preaching. I like to be heavy on illustration so it makes sense and paints pictures, but uh, I'm, I'm light on it. However, I do have somewhat of one that might be helpful, and it's uh, that, that our Two passages for the next two weeks is kind of like the pre-op to that spiritually speaking surgery that's going to take place or uh, surgical preparation that's necessary for the work that God wants to do in our hearts so that the life that we live in the kingdom as the church is a healthy life, right? And the way I want to do that is I want to start with a parable that has spoke to me all week, caused me all kinds of problems, um, that Jesus tells in Luke. It's uh, pre-op. It would be similar to the epidermal that's inserted to numb the nerve. This is the epidermal. This parable is the epidermal to numb a specific attitude that many of us have a tendency to be diagnosed with. This parable is one of the most profound stories that Jesus tells in all of the Gospels, that's my opinion, right? And used as the pre-surgery examination or consultation that needs to take place before the heart can receive the appropriate spiritual procedure performed from the master surgeon. Disclaimer. There is some pain involved in all stages of surgery. And that's my way of warning you this morning to be prepared for toes to be stomped. So if you all would turn in your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14, or follow along with me here on the screen, we can dive right in. Verse 9. Um, 
He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and then treated others with contempt. Ten. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, this sinner behind me. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but rather beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen? So as God's creation, we've we've dealt with all this already through Galatians and and just some of the other books that we've walked through. We all suffer with a heart condition that's rooted in pride and produces godly or ungodly attitudes. It's what we refer to or, or commonly call sin, right? And has to be surgically removed uh, with the Word of God so that we can become more like Christ. Like that's the goal of Christianity is to conform to the Word of God, not the world, so that we can look more like Jesus. And one of the most cancerous attitudes the Christian can have is self-righteousness. And if you're anything like me, someone just came to your mind. Someone comes to your mind when you hear that word, which makes you self-righteous. That's why each of us have to be intentional as we walk through the Beatitudes in chapter 5 and the following passages that come after that because they're so contrary to what many think of as being necessary for kingdom life. Right? Go to church, read my Bible, do these things. Now Jesus raises the standard. And in our passage Today, Jesus pulls no punches going straight for the juggler because a religious, self-righteous spirit has no place in the kingdom. And assuming that's important to you, right? Assuming you want to look like Jesus, assuming you want to follow the Lord and honor Him and obey Him, we must be willing to, try, to not try and admit others for work on their heart when the doctor is having us look at our own x-ray. I realize Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees because that might be your first argument. Well, he was speaking to the Pharisees, right? In verse 9, he told this parable to some who are trusting in themselves that they were righteous. The Pharisee. But we also know that 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by or inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. It's, it's the Scripture we funnel all other Scriptures through. And we have to say, 
Lord, which one is this for me today? Is it teaching me? Is it reproof? Is it reproof for me? Is it correcting me? Or is it training me in righteousness? Which means this too has application in our own life. I've always said people's faith journey includes becoming self-righteous. It always does. Why? Because when God's grace begins to reveal all this truth to you and gives you the ability to follow that truth, you start thinking everybody should act more like me. Right? I'm guilty. I've done it. And it's one way that God chooses to humble us. Trust me, I have plenty of experience with this. Uh, where, you know, just studying theology and different things like that over years. Uh, theology uh, is important. Theology does matter. But theology can also puff you up and cause you not to love others in spite of them. Right? And in the story, Jesus tells, uh, he makes it clear that there are two positions for everyone of us to be in. There's two positions One of these two is where we find ourselves this morning. And unfortunately, one of these two will end up where, or end up being where we drift to sometimes. And, and, and this is what's going to be helpful for us. It's in many ways, Jesus is always using these two examples. So we're very clear the, the rock and the sand foundation, right? The prodigal son story. There's one that was lost and one that was found, right? Which tells me that there's no gray area. There's no star system like Cracker Barrel, right? There's no grading system where you have, must qualify. And there's no riding the fence. Stephen talked last week. There is no lukewarm Christian, right? And in this specific uh, parable, there's the prideful and the humble. It means that we're, we're either exalting ourselves or exalting the living God. We're either prideful or humble. We're either trusting in our own self-righteousness and our own intellect or trusting in God's righteousness and what God's Word has said, His truth. One is an attitude that builds our own kingdom and the other attitude shines light on and builds His kingdom. One gets you in and one keeps you out. The seriousness of what's being addressed tells me we need to check our hearts often to be sure that we're right with God because that's exactly the main message of the parable, which he reveals at the end of our story in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Justified being made right rather than the other. And like the doctor who has to come into the waiting room or whatever to share the bad news with the family uh, this morning, I'm, I'm following Jesus' lead. And need to be very clear, I am not talking to the person that came to your mind. I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to you this morning. Matthew's table. God has a word for us. And it would serve us well to take notes, to search our hearts, to confess to the Lord that we're all sinners saved by grace. Because this tumor of self-righteousness grows in the hearts of the religious folks. Church people, guys. 
just like the Pharisees. And I want you to think about that, because that's important, right? Like, Because what happens is, sin is deceptive, and we assume because we're a part of the church that we're no longer prideful, and that's a lie. Right? The Pharisees, they knew about God, they knew about grace, they knew about righteousness, but they missed it. They did not understand justification by faith alone on the basis of the Redeemer alone. And it's exactly why Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So let's look at the x-ray in more detail the Word of God, to expose the cancerous attitude um, further, right? So verse 10 through 12. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, separating himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers like Roger, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give all of the tithes that I get. This Pharisee mentioned, I want you, I'm, I'm gonna explain this a little better here in a minute, but this Pharisee that's mentioned here in this parable is a person, but it more represents the self righteous attitude in the believer's heart. And his actions indicate how we can spot it in ourselves. I'm going to walk you through three signs to help you steer clear of uh, that tumor growing in your heart. The first sign is exactly what the Pharisee's doing in the passage. I think you know, I'm not like other men. Uh, I think you know, I'm not like these other men, right? Comparing yourselves to others. Isn't it funny that when we go to compare ourselves, we'll typically find somebody that's beneath us to compare ourselves to? We don't just gr naturally gravitate to the guy that's got it all together, right? Like we compare it to the person that seems to be struggling or not having it all together. It's the first mistake that we often make looking around us to validate our own awesomeness. And many of us find if we were to be totally honest, many of us find comfort in others' shortcomings or failures simply because it makes us feel better about ourselves, right? Like that's why we do that. Yet comparing ourselves to someone else is an idolatry trap because creation is not the standard. The Creator is. You want to compare yourself to someone, compare yourself to Jesus, Jesus is your standard for comparison. A high view of yourself causes you to treat others poorly. That's what, that's what this says. It's that uh, someone who trusted themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. If we make ourselves the standard, then we become the object of worship, which provokes us to treat others with contempt, sometimes not consciously, but even subconsciously. And I need you all to see this. Notice the Pharisee is in the church 
praying to God, but separating himself from the sinner. Right? Proving you can't genuinely love your neighbors if you think you're better than they are. Because it won't manufacture love in your heart for them. Rather, it causes you to withhold love from them. However, if we understand that we're all on common ground before God, it's never that we're better than someone else. It's that we have something better than them that we want them to know. Right? Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Think about this. Because if we ever get to this point where we think, hey, now I've arrived, everybody needs to recognize how awesome I am, Jesus didn't do that. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Right? It's those thoughts that creep in because all of a sudden God's given you the grace necessary to follow him or obey him and you can't help but to start thinking if those people started to act more like I do, then they would deserve God's love like I do, right? Which always leads us to the next sign of self-righteousness Sign number two are the I statements. In the passage here, the Pharisee standing by himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And there's this image that comes to mind that I'd seen recently on uh, Facebook that they're supposed to be showing. but um, it, And it's just, it's what we do. They'll, it'll end up up there. The Pharisee looking down on the sinner reminds God of all the things that he's done. Notice the image there. There's the biker. It's all tattooed up. Of course, we always pick the, the biker or the, that, that guy, right? And she's thinking, he thinks he's a Christian. And they're thinking, you aren't a true follower like us based on your outward appearance. You need to look more like I do. And if God was to laugh at us, I think it's when we have the nerve to call out our good deeds inventory of all the great things that we've done, right? Me reminding God of all the things I've done for Him, which I've done before, by the way. Matter of fact, usually when I find myself facing an, uh, a huge trial and I start struggling in my heart towards God, that's the first thing. Well, Lord, look at all the things I've been doing for you. Look at all the people I helped for you, Lord. Like I start reminding, how dare you allow this to happen to me? How dare you treat me that way? It's a failure to realize how I got there to begin with and why I am who I am today. The grace of God. The grace of God. God alone, right? It's not based on what I've done, but what He's done in spite of me. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it again at some point, but the only thing I've contributed to my salvation is my sin. That's it. And then for some reason, all of a sudden, I start forgetting about the grace that God's given me, and I, I tell you, you need to start behaving a little better, right? Right? 
Guys, when the church stops dealing with sin, it's lost its way. It's lost its way. And I know that because Jesus dealt with it throughout His entire ministry. I'll give you an example of uh, where the Pharisees all huddle around and they go to stone the adulterous woman. It is uh, John chapter 8, verses 6 through 11. It says, This they said to test Jesus. so that they might have some charges to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bends down and he wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, isn't that weird? He didn't say nothing, he wrote. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before her. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It doesn't mean she would be sinless, by the way. It just means he's saying, quit being uh, an adulterer. Don't do that no more, right? But also, uh, there is uh, many uh, theologians or scholar, scholarly people that would say, uh, in, in, with this passage, what we see is where Jesus bends down and he starts writing the sins in the ground of the Pharisees. And so as he's writing the sins of the Pharisees, the Pharisees are seeing it and it's reminding them that they also are sinful And notice it says it begins with the oldest of them. Well, he had the most sins written down. He'd lived long enough. So he turns and walks away. Jesus dealt with sin through his entire ministry. If we become a church who's not willing to talk about sin or confess our sin, we have lost our way. So the delusion that our sin is different or better than others' sin, puts us on the throne where we sit in judgment of others and moves us from the worship of God to the worship of ourself and an expectation of others to worship us as well. Two things I want you to notice about the I statements. His five eyes is less than Jesus' one I. At the end of the passage, I've already read to you the verse, Jesus says, I tell you who's justified. Right? There never come a point where we have enough eyes to outdo the great I am. The seven eyes. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the gate. Right? Jesus says, I'm the one that gets to say I, you all say me. God's already claimed what it takes to be right with God, and that's trusting in Him and His works, not our own. Also, notice the I statements are all good things, which is the tricky part. Right? See, y'all ain't going to come up here and remind nobody of the bad things you did. You're going to point out all the good things. He even mentions the church things that he did. I tithe. I fast twice a week. It's not what's being done. It's who you give the credit to. Right? 
Here's a little exercise just to see if y'all are awake and y'all are following along with me and if you heard anything uh, uh, about the sermon today. There is no I in... No. Humble. There's an I in pride and there's an I in sin. There is no I in humble or there is no I in death to self. I had to be careful and pick certain things that didn't have eyes in them, but... But you get my point, right? These I statements is what gets us in trouble. And then we have our final sign. The third and final sign of this, uh, from the passage is, you know, one, comparing ourselves to others, and, uh, which leads to a focus on ourself, and then creates a critical I. Now, all of these signs are not separate from one another. They could be individual cases that I've failed in more often than none. But to some extent, it, it kind of can come in this sequence. So don't worry about uh, that. Just find one of these three signs, and let's trust that the Lord will reveal that to us and so that we can uh, work on that. But typically, the critical eye causes us to become frustrated with everyone and everything around us because we're more worried that everyone behaves the way we think they should or things go the way we think they should go. And then we become more concerned with people satisfying us and our standard or our perspective than them obeying and serving God. And unfortunately, this is just another one that I've been guilty of um, more times than I'd like to mention, right? Like I start complaining and, and I find myself unable to see what God would want me to see. Something was done or something was said that I simply didn't agree with and it caused a snowball effect in my heart like going down the hill where it just keeps growing and growing and growing where finally I couldn't see anything positive. I didn't have anything good to say about what was going on. And Jesus deals with this in the Sermon on the Mount that we'll go deeper with in our study, but it's worthy of just kind of mentioning or getting a snapshot of what that's going to look like in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. I'm going to read it to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how... Can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He is not saying there's one person more sinful than the other there. Right? What he's trying to communicate is we are all dealing with sin in our lives and your primary responsibility as a follower of Jesus is to crucify the sin in your life, not theirs. Jesus did that already, right? Jesus wasn't asking because he didn't know. It's a rhetorical question. He was making a point that the log blinds us to our own sin. And so complaining about everyone and everything going on specifically in the church, speaking from experience, is a clear sign to me there isn't as much wrong with the church as the person's heart complaining. You're struggling. Self-righteousness is telling others they are wrong where Christianity is confessing I am wrong. 
And the deception behind self-righteousness is that you're trusting in your own moral decency rather than God's moral perfection. We start to think that we're the standard of good rather than the only good person to ever live. And because I know how some of us think about uh, this particular uh, sin or uh, reality that that can happen in our own lives, uh, there's something that needs to be said. The parable is not addressing the rich versus the poor. The parable is not addressing the privileged versus the underprivileged. That's not the context of this passage. It's a self-righteous attitude towards others versus a right perspective of yourself in relation to God. It's true humility. Right? Self-pity is just as sinful as self-righteousness. True humility, like the sinner in our parable this morning, again, uh, really helps us understand this isn't about a person. This isn't that the Pharisee was condemned because of the way, because of who he was, so that we can all say, well, we're not Pharisees, so we're good. It's about a position that you find yourself in, that you're standing in. Humility. Verse 13. We see the tax collector and what he says about this. He says the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so the second man is also in the church and gives each of us the appropriate example of how to be right with God, how to stay right with God, and how to get right with God. But before we look at the two things that are very important in in that one verse, I want to mention something regarding righteousness. There's typically two ends of the righteousness spectrum for all Christians to fall in, simply because of the sin nature that that we all deal with. And I've kind of already mentioned that. But one always thinks he's better than others, or one thinks that they can never be good enough. One will be overconfident, or one won't have any confidence at all. And both of those for the Christian are equally sinful because the focus is on you. Right? We all live on borrowed righteousness. We all live trusting in what God has done for us through Jesus. Nobody has the right to say they're better than anyone else or that they're less than anyone else. Music team can start heading this way. Uh, I'm going to steal a quote from Stephen Kidd, but D.T. Niles, uh, a pastor, he says, we're all just one beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread. We're all just one beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread. What's the bread? I am the bread of life. There's another I statement. The bread of life is Jesus, full of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Right? You meet somebody in the church, this is, like I struggled with a lack of self-confidence, I mean, for years, even recently. It's it's something that continues to uh, 
keep me, hold me back in being bold about Jesus and different things. But anyways, uh, one thing in the last few months that the Lord's really been helping me with in regards to that is to understand that the Bible's true and I'm a lie. Or like my, my feelings and emotions are a lie. So now I try to look through the gospel goggles when I'm uh, approaching or, or getting to know someone and reminding myself, huh? Hey, Roger, I'm a beggar. Bob, you're a beggar too, right? We're all beggars. Because what we do is, oh, hey, I'm Roger. Yeah, I'm a convicted felon. I, you know, I struggle with something. And you're a doctor. Oh, you're way better than I am. Like, that's how we think, right? But gospel goggles tell you a different story. No, he's a beggar and I'm a beggar. And we got a lot in common, right? And we know that because of James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And this, guys, is the common ground that we all need to find ourselves on. Beggars. We're all beggars. Because in relation to God, we're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior, relying on an ongoing provision of grace from God in our lives. Right? Nowhere in the Scriptures does it suggest that we are to be better than or less than anyone else or to become self-reliant. Oh, I've, been, I've been good enough for a while. I can just start trusting. I don't need church. I don't need community. I don't need fellowship with other believers. I got this, right? Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest man to ever live. Think about that. Like John had the privilege of Jesus himself titling him the greatest man to ever live. But John said, I'm not even qualified enough to tie the sandals of Jesus. So you want to know what the anthem of a Christian is? It's John chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Humility is the Christian's trophy. It's the biggest thing that's going to cause a difference in your witnessing, in your testimony. Right? And the, and the Scriptures are chalked full of it. Psalm 51, King David, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, You will not despise. Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets, 66.2, kind of puts it into perspective. All these things My hand has made. This is God speaking. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Right? 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want to be in opposition with God? Compare yourselves to others. Make I statements. Be prideful. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Colossians 3.12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. Humility. So here's... Here's today's takeaways. This is what I'm hoping you're going to take away with this. And and really, all this is about um, 
what, why we need to do this, right? The two things that I need to point out that's contrary to the world that we live in and necessary for kingdom life is to humble oneself. Walk in humility. Not weakness, but meekness. Because that's reflecting light on Jesus. Meaning, this is what I, I need you to, this is what I need to do. We choose to humble ourselves because we all fight the temptation of wanting to be proud. And that's why Jesus warns each of us in that final uh, pronouncement. He ends the parable with this pronouncement. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We have a choice. We can either humble ourselves or he will humble us. And I've experienced that more times than one. I've humiliated myself more times than I would ever, more time than we would have for me to sit here and tell you about. And so we have to choose to humble ourselves. And then the other thing, kind of the takeaway, is to become comfortable with the label of sinner, right? Uh, it's funny when uh, first thing that took place, first official order of Friends of Sinners business when we started the ministry. And they were like, Roger, you want a board or not? You better know, boards will cause you all kinds of pains in the... And I was like, yeah, but it'll also provide credibility, accountability, integrity, and a, I think that's wise. I said, okay. Well, you're also the executive director. You can't vote on things related to... You know, okay, I understand. Okay, first order of business. Should we change the name of Friends of Sinners? I was like, what are you talking about? You can't change the name of Friends of Sinners. Or afraid it might offend people. You know how many articles have been written against Friends of Sinners just by the name? Or how many people complain about that name? Because we live in a culture who's progressively moving towards this. Uh, we can identify as whatever we want to. We want to get away from the reality of who we are in relation to God. And what I say is let's follow Paul's lead. He refers to himself the chief of all sinners. There's nothing wrong with that, guys. He also says that I'm the least of all apostles. I'm the worst, right? More, I, I spent a lot of time uh, discrediting myself for the glory of God, okay? But me and Nick worked really hard the last couple of years to both now have a bachelor's degree. And I don't ever talk about it because I don't care to. That doesn't, that doesn't add anything to me, right? Like, I, I, I appreciate it. I'm a, I feel more accomplished because I did it, right? But I wanted to honor God. There's nothing wrong with saying, man, I am a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, right? I, you know what I identify with? I say a sinner. That's what I identify with, right? It's not a bad thing. Matter of fact, it's the best thing you could ever say about yourself. Because until then, you don't know you need a Savior, like, I don't run around and be like, hey, convicted felon, yeah, rob people, you know. I don't do that. But hey, let me tell you about a really good man named Jesus. And, and the whole purpose of what we're, we're doing today and what we're fixing to do is that our vision statement, I'm telling you guys, it's a supernatural goal. 
It's going to require all of us to find that common ground, sinners, right? To execute the call that God has on Matthew's table. I need all hands on deck and all hearts in check. To look, live, and love like heaven is done by looking to heaven. Heaven come down. For the appropriate position for us to work from moving forward to ensure that we're heading in the right direction. If we try and start from the wrong position, we'll have a hard time arriving at the right destination. And I'm going to say something that needs to be said. The church over the years has drifted towards the gifted rather than the called and the anointed. To build their kingdom and not God's. And it's time that the church owns that. We want people to know Jesus and we are not going to draw crowds in by things that attract their attention. Refuse to do it. It's the best y'all get, guys. I'm going to be honest with you. The truth is, Nick and Stephen's far better than I am and I'm okay with that. But there's a call on this church to do something that hasn't been done recently because many of us ended up worrying more about which denomination was right rather than the other one. Now we got like-hearted people that just want people to know Jesus and to understand the Scriptures better and to grow in our faith. But we're going to all have to humble ourselves and quit squabbling over silly stuff so that a lost world looks to us and sees heaven on earth and desires to know Jesus the way we do. We're going to close in song this morning and I invite you to search your hearts. I invite you to allow the Scriptures to do to you what it has done to me this week. Confess to God your sin instead of playing God. Beat your chest and beg Him to be merciful to you so that you can be humble and be justified by God. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, there's good news for you. You can humble yourself. You can confess that you need a Savior. And you can run to the cross because everything that you need has already been done for you. And so as we close this morning, I've always wondered, you know, there's a debate about this too. Well, we shouldn't do the altar call. We're, we're leading people to believe that, you know, the altar call is what saves them. I mean, whatever. I don't understand why more, I don't understand when there's an invitation. I'm going to get Chris out of I don't understand when there's an invitation at the end of church for everybody to come down and pray and humble themselves and cry out to God. Everybody gets their panties in a wad. I don't know if I'm going to say it. Humble yourself. Get on your knees. Beg God to do in you what you can't do in yourself. It's the only way, guys, people's going to see in us what they want from Him. Hey, thanks for joining us today. A special thanks to those who sow into this ministry. If you'd like to partner with us financially, text all one word, Matthew's Table, to 73256. That's Matthew's Table to 73256. It's because of you this ministry is possible.
If you like what you've heard, click the subscribe button and share it with your friends. You never know what God can do through your one act of obedience. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. God bless.